This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Welcome to Health and Living with me, T. Shaoik. 2023 marks the 13th year of HPV vaccination in Malaysia's National Immunization Programme, where 13-year-old girls in Form 1 receive the human papillomavirus vaccination in schools, and that's to prevent the development of cervical cancer. In fact, before the COVID-19 pandemic, we had achieved near-universal immunization, Mm -hmm. uh, and we reached an estimated 250,000 13-year-old girls each year. And uh, we've been hearing some developments um, following the COVID-19 pandemic. We'll be discussing that in a little bit. But uh, the most recent development is that the Ministry of Health in Malaysia will switch to a single dose regime. So we will be discussing whether one dose is just as effective as two or three doses. Uh, And joining me in the studio, my co-host, Dr. George Lee, consultant Mm. urologist. Hello. Joining us on Zoom for this important discussion, Professor Margaret Stanley, Emeritus Professor Professor of Epithelial Biology at the University of Cambridge and Professor Dr. Wu Yinling, Consultant Gynecological Oncologist at University Malaya Medical Centre here in Malaysia. Um, welcome everyone. Thank you so much for joining uh, us today. How are both of you, Prof Wu and Prof Margaret? Well, I'm fine. It's The sun is shining, which is a <laughs> very big change. In Even, in <laughs> Even in Cambridge. Even in Cambridge. I'm very well, well thank, thank you. you. The sun is not really shining for us here. It's rainy almost every evening. Um, But um, we'll disregard the weather and continue with our discussion today. Prof. Margaret, if I could um, put you on the spot a little bit. You've been involved in HPV research, cervical cancer prevention, and uh, in fact, now we're talking about cervical cancer elimination, right? You've been involved in this work for the last 30 to 40 years, if I'm not mistaken. Can you share some highlights first, you know, um, for our listeners' benefit? How far has this work, the work in this area, come um, over this last few decades? It's unbelievable. When I started, um, I started as a cytopathologist reading pap smears. So I could tell a woman that she had something going on in her cervix and I could uh, direct the uh, gynecological surgeon to look at it and do something about it. Um, and that was, but that was all I could do. Whereas then the cause of the disease was discovered. And that's a, an infectious cause, infection with a virus. Once you've got infection with a virus, the possibility of getting a vaccine that actually prevents the infection exists. And that happened. Mm-hmm. Part of the work that caused it to happen happened in my in my lab. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a highlight. Fantastic. Then, then we got the results of this of immunizing with this virus. And they're stunning. In the UK, mm-hmm. women under 30 do not have cervical cancer mm-hmm. because they've been immunized and there's no virus infection. No virus infection with the HPV types in the vaccine. Mm-hmm. But those in the vaccine, those strains in the vaccine are the ones which cause most of the cancers. So in my career, I've seen us go from knowing that there was a disease to actually preventing it and to preventing the cause. And that that's a privilege. And it's 
I don't have the words to describe how I feel. Yeah. Because service, service cancer kills women. Yeah. And it kills women when they're in their most productive years. So this is a... You know, shall, shall we, you know, just to add a little bit of story to what Professor Margaret was saying, that I remember uh, when I was in Cambridge as well, and you know, matriculated in 1990, um, one of the students was asked one question is about what do you think is a landmark discovery in modern times of medicine? And then, you know, apart from something like a, in the scale of the discovery of penicillin, someone actually mentioned that perhaps one day we will eliminate cervical cancer with vaccinations. What's interesting to see that obviously that is the kind of hope that we have 30 years ago. But what are the obstacles you've seen, Margaret, in the last few, uh, last three decades that we, um, you know, came up with that discovery? Well, cost. It's an expensive vaccine. So that was always a uh, an issue. And um, the public health policy makers, the governments, had to be convinced that it was cost-effective. And that involved quite a lot of work from uh, epidemiologists and modelers. So, but also in the last, so particularly the last 10 years, it's been anti-vaccine or cost, not not anti-vaccine so much as lack of trust mm-hmm. medicine, lack of trust in vaccines. And certainly in Europe and America, that's perhaps the biggest hindrance to acceptance of the vaccine. Even when you show that it prevents cervical cancer, there's an anxiety. So we have to think, we have to rethink how we persuade our patients, how we persuade the general public to take come back and take confidence in what we're saying. So that, I think, is the biggest hurdle for Northern Europe and for America. Whether it's the biggest hurdle for Malaysia is a different issue. Mm. There, it's we're only doing girls. We must do boys, for example, because this is this is an infection. It's transmitted between males and females. So if you don't do the boys, you don't get rid of the virus entirely. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a complex issue. Absolutely. Um, a lot of um, behavioral science going on behind this as well. But Prof Wu, we're also talking about elimination of cervical cancer. I've never heard that word being used with any cancer, right? What do we mean by that? I think it's it's an amazing period in our time where all of us can be part of this narrative of eliminating a cancer that's so common among females in low-middle-income settings. When, in real terms, what it says is that... Uh, the elimination means we remove cervical cancer from being a public health problem. But more than that, it means that we would remove the cost of treatment, the psychological and emotional trauma um, of families and women that undergo or have cervical cancer or advanced cervical cancer. Because the early detection means that and the prevention means that a woman will never have to undergo extensive treatment that will remove their reproductive ability or their take their lives. So the ability to vaccinate, to screen and to treat 
should be within our power to implement in most countries and hence no women should ever go through this cancer. And Prof. Margaret, those three areas um, are, I think, also WHO's targets, right? Vaccination, screening and treatment uh, for us to achieve elimination of cervical cancer. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit more about those areas and perhaps uh, an idea of how far some countries have come in achieving those? Well, um, countries that have had well-designed and um, well-accepted screening programs were always ahead of the game Mm. because they had brought the um, number of cases of cervix cancer down to a pretty low level, but not low enough. They were, it was, this comes as a big surprise to people, but Cervical cancer was always the most common cancer in women aged under 40. Mm-hmm. It was more common than breast in women aged under 40. And those women were not impacted by screening for a whole variety of reasons. So the, the vaccination has had a huge effect on that tranche, that remaining difficult tranche of women who we couldn't access via screening. So, and also vaccination, I've said publicly, is probably the most achievable of the targets. And the reason for that is that we already have an infrastructure for immunization, even in the poorest countries. The extended program for immunization, API, works and it works well. So, and so women are accustomed to um, vaccination, vaccination for their children. And so they're accustomed to having an injection mm-hmm. in their nine, ten-year-olds. So uh, providing you can um, support that infrastructure mm-hmm. and pro- providing you can make the, the vaccine cost-effective for those countries mm-hmm. There are international systems that allow that. Then vaccination, I think, is at ninety percent in nine to ten year olds is achievable, mm-hmm. but needs a lot of work. Now, screening is exponentially more difficult because mm-hmm. with vaccination you need just to train the immunizers. You know, they can go around on a motorbike with their um, their. Uh, cooler full of vaccine Mm -hmm. to a village and immunize it. Can't do that with screening. You you, first of all it's screening is detecting that something's wrong. But then you have to treat it. Mm. So I I never like talking about screening alone. I like screening and treatment. Yeah. (laughs) If you you don't treat it, if you don't remove it, well why did you bother to do it in the first Mm -hmm. place? Yep. Yeah, Professor Margaret, just obviously for the benefit of the uh, listeners out there, just the confidence in this vaccine, what sort of efficacy are we looking at and also what sort of time, uh, you know, over what period of time after the vaccination? Well, um, if, if I take the UK and the Nordic statistics, in the under 30s vaccine, um, they've reduced cervical cancer by um, 
87 and 90 percent, respectively. Mm -hmm. That's in that group of women under the age of 30, but with a very high vaccine coverage. Right. What sort of coverage do they achieve? in? We're talking about 88, 90 percent in girls. Right. If you put the boys in, then um, the coverage can be just that, but a bit lower because of this thing called herd immunity. Mm-hmm. where you get so many people um, protected in the population. Those who haven't been vaccinated are protected. Yeah. And it brings the amount of virus that's moving around. You know, your chance of getting infected becomes less and less and less yeah. as a selfless virus. So before I put Prof Wu on the spot, I want to ask, you know, it's interesting, Professor Margaret used the Nordic as an example. How is the UK doing when it comes to the coverage? Oh, the UK has excellent coverage. Before COVID, we had an average of 85 to 86%. Brilliant. And in Scotland, it was in the 90s. Mm-hmm. In Northern Ireland, it was lower, but that's traditional. They've always had a lower vaccine uptake. Mm-hmm. So the UK was doing very well before COVID. But COVID, because it was a school program, because all our kids went to school, yeah. they didn't get the vaccine. But there's the the programs have swung back into action, and the coverage is increasing quite quite satisfactorily. Yep. How's Malaysia doing? I think, as Shawik put it, uh, we started our program from 2010 onwards, and as part of um, the research work that we did at University Malaya, we had the opportunity to look at the infection rates in a urban cohort before they benefited from the vaccines and 10 years later after the vaccination program was on. And what we found was that the HPV types that were covered by the vaccine, i.e. HPV 16 and 18, the rates that were discovered in the post-vaccination group of women reduced by 90%. Wow. 90%. Now, this is consistent what we see globally. So what we've done is, although we don't have any registry to look at um, um, the nation's data, the study was done in such a way that we could go back to a area in Salango uh, in 2013 and 2020 and look at the impact of vaccination. So this is totally consistent with um, what we see internationally. So we should expect um, the incidence of cervical cancer to reduce as well um, in the subsequent years. But if you allow me, what, what we have seen that's quite different from maybe many other countries is that the types of HPV that causes uh, abnormal changes of the cervix, which are not covered by the current vaccines, namely type 52, uh, type 58, they were sort of higher over the years that we looked at. So what this translates to is that we we may need to consider uh, protection of um, girls with vaccines that may perhaps cover more types of um, the high-risk HPV Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in the Asian setting. What sort of coverage uh, type that we have for the school uh, girls' vaccination at the moment? So 
in Malaysia, we have a very fair procurement system whereby every two years, um, the government will put out a tender. And so far, it's been a rotation between the bivalent and the quadrivalent. Um, initially, we started with uh, three doses. And in 2016, we went down to uh, two doses. Um, then we stopped as well during the COVID pandemic. Um, and we've, we've not restarted our program, but I believe we're starting next year. And uh, we will see with um, single dose what will happen next year when, mm. when the school-based program recommences. Mm. So, and, but what you're saying is we need updated registry data on cervical cancer numbers, right? To know the impact there. Yeah, I think I think that's an issue that many um, low income, low middle income countries uh, have to deal with, in that uh, we we are not regulated, um, or, or there's no enforcement to to register every single cancer case. At one point in time, it was uh, there, but not anymore. Perhaps this is something that we need to look at to see whether the interventions that we are taking, not just for cervix cancer, but for everything else, mm-hmm. whether it's it's good investment of our our money as a, as a country. Absolutely. We'll go for a quick break and come back to continue this discussion about HPV vaccination and moving to a single-dose regime. Joining me in the studio, my co-host, Dr. George Lee, consultant urologist, and over on Zoom, Professor Margaret Stanley, Emeritus Professor of Epithelial Biology at the University of Cambridge and Professor Wu Yanling, consultant gynecological oncologist at University Malaya Medical Centre. We'll be right back on Health and Living, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, T. Shawik. For our Doctor in House segment today, my co-host, Dr. George Lee, is in the studio with me. And we're speaking to Professor Margaret Stanley, joining us all the way from the UK. She's Emeritus Professor of Epithelial Biology at the University of Cambridge. And Professor Wu Yinling from University Malaya Medical Centre, where she's the consultant gynecological oncologist. Prof. Wu is, of course, the person we go to for all conversations about cervical mm-hmm. cancer. But Prof. Margaret has been sharing such amazing stories and experiences with us of having seen um, the evolution of the prevention of cervical cancer, not just in the course of her career, but in her lab, which is absolutely (laughs) fantastic. Um, Perhaps this would be a good time for a brief refresher uh, for our listeners, Prof. Margaret. How exactly does this breakthrough HPV vaccine work? How does it prevent cervical cancer? prevents infection with the virus. Uh, that's really interesting, I hope, for your listeners, because that is one of the things that makes it completely different to the COVID vaccine. Now, the COVID vaccine stops you dying um, because you don't go to um, intensive care and on ventilators. But the HPV vaccine actually stops the virus infecting the woman's cervix. And because it prevents infection, it prevents the disease because the disease is caused by infection with the virus. This is called sterilizing immunity. And it's not all that common with vaccines. But this this is a remarkably effective vaccine. Mm-hmm. You know, for, from the basic science point of view, it is an extraordinary um, vaccine, extraordinary in the immune response it generates an extraordinary in the impact it has on the virus 
So it it literally prevents virus infection. Mm -hmm. And because of that, we think we can actually eliminate the virus, the disease. This is a part I uh, come in as a urologist as well to add in to that prevention of cervical cancer. I understand that the virus also can uh, potentially induce oral pharyngeal cancer, anal cancer, and also uh, penile cancer. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. In fact, it, uh, HPV 16, um, which is the most pathogenic, the most virulent of these virus, HPV virus types, is the cause of cancer of the base of the tongue and cancer of the um, of the tonsil. And that oropharyngeal tonsil, at least in Northern Europe, is increasing in incidence of year on year. Now we have more cases of oropharyngeal cancer in men in the UK than we have of cervix cancer in women. Mm-hmm. So this this virus causes cancers in several sites, and it co- it's responsible, for the last <coughs> estimate, for about five point five percent of all cancers globally. Five point five, and yeah. you would think that people would be rushing out there to get the vaccine. You would think so. You would <laughs> think so, but of course, cancer's never going to happen to me. Yes. Might happen to somebody else, but it's not going to happen to me. So that's one of the behavioural problems you have to persuade. And um, I think the other behavioural aspect to receiving vaccines um, is this fear about whether vaccines are safe, despite um, the the success stories of vaccination as, as a public health initiative over the years, right? So can you address um, the safety aspect of the HPV vaccines? Well, every piece of information we have, every piece of evidence is that the HPV vaccine is, in quotation marks, a safe vaccine. Now, look, when you um, immunize, when you take a, a paracetamol, for example, you cannot guarantee that something else won't happen. Nothing is safe in terms of something foreign going into you. But this virus this vaccine does not seem to have any serious side effects. Um, I'm often asked, you know, why is the vaccine safe? Well, let me put it this way. When I have the HPV vaccine, the major side effect I have is a sore arm. Sometimes it's a very sore arm. Mm-hmm. Death service cancer, the major side effect is death. Mm-hmm. So... Take your mind up. Which do you want to go for? It's a good trade-off. It's a good trade-off. Yes. <laughs> That's right. I'll, I'll, I'll take the sore arm. It's a very sore arm, but I'll take it. <laughs> good. Yeah. Um, Prof, anything you'd like to add there? Uh, and I think um, despite cost, with which Prof Margaret mentioned earlier being one of the barriers for introducing the vaccine, despite perhaps... Um, there may be some vaccine hesitancy. I feel like Malaysia kicked off its HPV vaccination program really quite smoothly. Perhaps you can give us a bit of context and sort of what is the status of vaccination here in Malaysia now? I, I think we did very well. When we started the program, um, the Ministry of Health had a really good uh, communication strategy, which involved the uh, religious leaders coming out to say that this is a vaccine that prevents cancer. 
and there was sort of minimal sort of stigma associated with the vaccination because it's a cancer-preventing uh, vaccine. Now, we also did a study among um, teachers where they would speak to the children about get, uh, getting the vaccine done in school. Despite the fact that they don't understand a lot about the biology or the virus, the, the promotion of an immunization program in a school program had a high uptake because of the trust that they had in the government. So as we know, you know, when we were young, we had BCG, we had dental checks, we had a milk, a school milk program. So whatever initiative that was done in schools previously, the uptake is actually quite good. But we do need to um, take it quite seriously of what's happened in the last three years, because every year that we lose out on vaccinating our young uh, adolescents, the gains that we had previously will be lost. So there's an urgency to catch up with the vaccination because nearly 750,000 girls have not been vaccinated during our fight against pandemic. Mm -hmm. This is not unique to Malaysia. This is actually a situation in many countries whereby we've, we've used up a lot of our resources um, to fight the pandemic. But you know, with, with the advent of the single dose effectiveness data coming out, uh, which Margaret will share with us a bit more, I think it's a good time, you know. I, I've, I've said it all the time. We, we've really had such major scientific improvements in terms of eliminating a cancer that it is really our responsibility to do that. From pap smears, we now have HPV tests from three doses of vaccines. It's now one dose of potentially one dose. Everything is going towards the, our favour of yeah. eliminating this cancer and really we should take it up. <laughs> I mean, you know, while we're on the subject of one dose, right, okay, presumably the one dose was reduced to one dose for the identical vaccine for the purpose of um, convenience and also compliance, I guess, then are we going to see some sort of like compromise as far as coverage is concerned, Margaret? Well, if all these statistics are right, giving one dose should increase your coverage um, because this is absolutely the pattern across the world. You get really quite high uptake of one dose, even in very poor countries in sub-Saharan Africa, 88, 89%. But then the girls vote with their feet and they don't come back for the second dose. Mm -hmm. And it's very hard to chase them up. And it's actually very expensive. Now, when people say oh, you reduce uh, to one dose because of cost, this is true to an extent, but it's not the cost of the vaccine. It's the cost of administration, the actual whole infrastructure of immunizers, all the effort you have to go into to get the second dose in. But those aren't the reasons why um, countries have gone for one dose and WHO has given a recommendation. It's because it works. That's right. Okay. So basically, obviously, um, three doses will be ideal, but one will be good enough for the whole aim of elimination uh, in the years to come. Well, three doses might be too much. Ah. Two in a, uh, a previous um, style of the first one at zero months and the next one at six months. 
that gives you good antibody, good immunity. But one dose is just as good as two in the populations we've looked at. Okay. And uh, how do you look also at how long the effectiveness remains for? Well, when you when you start with a vaccine, when you start with an immunization program, frankly, you do not know how long it will last. As my mentor used to say to me, time will tell, Margaret, time will tell. And this is true. So what you do look at, in you know, if you have surveillance of immunized populations, is what is the level of the antibody over time. Mm-hmm. So, And this is one of the really reassuring things about one dose. The level of antibody stays a very, very, very constant. It doesn't decline in the... Now it's from one of the studies, up to 17 years. Wow. Wow. The start of immunization. That's um, the very first trial that was done in Costa Rica, which was the finding of one dose was a serendipitous outcome. But the National Cancer Institute people have followed those um, subjects very rigorously over time. And so I can assure you at 17 years, their antibodies are still stable. Whereas interestingly, the three dose and two dose start to decline ever, ever, ever so gently over time. So maybe they'll all coalesce Mm -hmm. 30 years down the track. Mm -hmm. But no, the, the evidence to date is that Antibody levels are stable over time, but more importantly, protection is stable over time. So there's no decline in protection against infection. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, does it work is actually what everybody wants to know. Mm. Indeed. Mm. Um, Prof, is that the rationale for Malaysia deciding to go single dose as well? Yes, I think what's important um, to realise that it's not a compromise of effectiveness because we, we don't have the resources to. I, I think it's looking at the evidence of what's available and also to make it really widely um, available to more adolescents. But whether or not we will cover boys is a story for another day. <laughs> I know George pick, will want that. I we are picking on that very shortly. Yeah. So so I think what's important is that you know, shall we? We talked a bit, a bit about this before um, the show. Is it is someone like yourself who is involved with health communication didn't even know that we have moved to a one dose mm-hmm. regime? I think what we need to do is always communicate changes in health policy effectively. Otherwise, the trust won't be there. So, you know, whether it's media or whether it's healthcare professionals, I think we need to look at the evidence and say that, yes, we are comfortable, we know that it works, and we need to convey that confidence to the uh, public before we start that vaccination, that's extremely important to say that we're not doing this because we don't have enough money or whatever. We're doing this because it works. Mm. I absolutely support that. And uh, since um, the UK went with its one dose recommendation, I've been talking to the people at the coalface, the nurses who do the immunisation, just giving them the evidence. You know, when they give one dose to the girls, 
they are providing immunity and protection. And that is absolutely critical because otherwise the um, the parents of the girls will say, why are you doing this? You know, is this is this so that you can get away with it doing being cheaper? Yes. So it's really, really important that everybody understands that this is because it works mm-hmm. mm. as effective as giving two doses. And it means we'll get to many, many, many more girls. And that is the critical thing. So that point, we can get many, many more girls um, by achieving something which which has um, equal impact. Prof, I was concerned about those 750,000 girls, you said, who have not been vaccinated. So with us going single dose, uh, and hopefully that catch-up program kicking off um, sooner rather than later. Um, will we be able to get those 750,000 girls back in as soon as possible? I, I'm I'm hopeful, and I hope so. Um, I, I don't I don't I can't speak for Ministry of Health, but I'm hopeful because the will is there. Mm-hmm. Can I just ask a bit of a technical question? We used to say two doses for for the 13-year-old girls who are going through the program in schools. And uh, for those who pass that age, they will need three doses. So if we go single dose, um, what about those? Does that cover all girls, all women, regardless of age? Well, I can only give you the UK's new regimen. And that is a single dose for... Um, everyone who's eligible in our program for girls and for the men who have sex with men program because we have a separate program for them. But three doses if you've got an autoimmune disease or if you're HIV infected because they your immune system is compromised. So you have to actually um, give it a bit, of, bit more help and you may have to go up to four doses. Who knows with uh, severely immunocompromised people. But they're a special group and they're looked after as a special group. So practically, and the reason that you go with one dose over that age range is that we now have trial data. Um, in other words, we've, we've had properly conducted studies that show that you can get protection across that age range. Mm-hmm. And, I, and listening to this podcast... We don't make decisions on what we saw in our uh, clinic today. We make decisions based on studies in which we've looked at very large numbers of women, boys and girls, whatever, and had a control group who don't get the intervention and the um, investigation group who do. And they're, they're very carefully matched up. So this is rigorous investigation to get the answer it's not uh, you know something you did last week is because you're interested in it yeah. So what um, you, you just basically clarified is that the one dose is actually across the board for except for special um, individuals we've got immunocompromised. That's absolutely mm-hmm. right. 
All right, let's go for another quick break and we'll come back to um, look at... I, I know George is just on the edge of his seat <laughs> wanting to talk about vaccinating boys. Uh, my co-host, Dr. George Lee, in the studio with me for Doctor in House today. We're discussing HPV vaccination with Professor Margaret Stanley, Emeritus Professor of Epithelial Biology at the University of Cambridge and Professor Dr. Wu Yinling, Consultant Gynecological Oncologist at University of Malaya Medical Centre. We'll be right back on Health and Living BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, T. Xiao Ik. For Doctor in the House today, my co-host Dr. George Lee is in the studio with me. We're chatting with Professor Margaret Stanley, Emeritus Professor of Epithelial Biology at the University of Cambridge, and Professor Dr. Wu Yinling, Consultant Gynecological Oncologist at University of Malaya Medical Centre. We're discussing the evolution of HPV vaccination, how far we've come that we have now discovered that single dose, uh, one dose of the vaccine is just as effective as two or three doses. And this will have a huge impact on the ability of countries, especially countries with lower resources, to vaccinate more girls. And could we consider vaccinating boys mm -hmm. as well? <laughs> um, you know, resources aside, maybe we look at the science and the public health of it first. Okay, George, I'll let you have this first. <laughs> okay, right. Your thoughts on vaccinating so, okay. boys? Um, well, I think mankind sometimes cannot be too kind to men. Well, I've got four facts to prove that. Number one, uh, is that true, Margaret, that um, men has higher prevalence of HPV infection throughout their ages? Basically, women kind of like were eliminated as they age, but men tend to stick to higher prevalence. It's probably partly because of the um, uh, natural way of raising immune it's slightly compromised as compared to women. As a result, probably more chance of re uh, reinfection and recurrence. And also, I, uh, in research work that we did in Malaysia, show that women's transmission to men is actually higher than men transmission to women. So in those four facts, I think mankind is not so kind to men. So how do I get a piece of that resource from Prof Wu so that <laughs> can give a boy a little bit of kindness? What's your view on that, Margaret? I am a strong advocate for immunizing boys. In fact, I wrote a, a, an opinion piece in Nature in 2012. I was ahead of the game saying you really have to immunize boys. But you're right. Men make very poor um, immune responses, antibody responses to infection with HPV, whether it's um, in the genital tract or whether it's in the oral cavity. And so, But they make excellent responses to the vaccine. So if you want to prevent infection in men, you have to vaccinate them. You can't rely on natural infection generating a protective response. Men have cancers caused by HPV. They're not as common as the cancer caused in women. But nonetheless, you can't screen for them. And they present late and it's difficult to treat. So, you know, HPV infection in men carries a big problem. And secondly... This, I would say, takes two to tango. So women give it to men, men give it to women. And unless you break that transmission, you are never going to get the virus down to the levels of, of elimination of virus 
and elimination of disease. So, you know, the modelers modeled this ex exhaustively. And there's no question, if you want to reach the WHO's targets, then you're going to have to immunize boys as well. Prof, is this a conversation we're having in Malaysia? I, I think um, not enough of it. And I do believe that um, we've always prioritized vaccinating 90% of our girls. Now, if we actually stick with 90% of the girls, yes, you know, you may reach the elimination target. But when we talk about herd immunity and resilience within a community, as soon as you drop below that 90% vaccination, then you lose the gains. And that's when vaccinating boys, besides all the other benefits, will come into play. You're actually going to protect the girls. And in terms of equity and a public health intervention, it is really important to consider the boys. On an individual basis, I can tell you I vaccinated my son as soon as he turned nine. But as a public health policy, I think more discussion uh, needs to happen and um, the modelling can be done. And I, I also have this to add. Every time when we talk to the industry, they say, you cannot talk about the prevention of head and neck cancers. We're not, we're not, um, we, we don't have the label for that. But if, you, if we listen to what Margaret said earlier on, the vaccine prevents the infection, prevents the infection. And we know that the infection accounts for so many of these head and neck cancers and 5.5% 5, 5 of global cancers, then really we should bring this vaccine, make it available for all. Mm. Uh, George, what do you think will be the barriers, you know, to, to start talking to um, communities, parents about vaccinating mm -hmm. boys, will there be issues? Well, there are only two barriers. Number one, awareness. You know, even amongst healthcare providers, as soon as I start talking about HPV vaccine and they say, oh, are you infringing into the female territories now? And then so people just assume that HPV vaccine, it's only for girls. And then so I think awareness is the biggest barrier. The second barrier, presumably, is a taboo because at the end of the day, it is a form of sexually transmitted infection. And I think that in a country like Malaysia, we still feel very uncomfortable to talk about it. Mm, yeah, I mean, but we made such great leaps um, with vaccinating girls um, by making it about cancer prevention. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's a narrative that. So that I've got a lot to learn from. from Prof Wu. That's why. Yeah. No, no, we learn together. The, the, the talking about taboo. One important thing we we need we cannot end this session without saying this is that HPV infection is an extremely common infection. Eighty to ninety percent of men and women are exposed to HPV at some point in time. And the question is, how do we reduce that infection rate in our communities? So the discussion shouldn't be around, oh, um, who has transmitted to who. We just have to know that it's a common infection and we have the tools to now remove that infection or eliminate that infection from our community. Mm -hmm. 
So, you know, what Prof. Margaret said earlier about that denial of cancer won't happen to me, there are many people, parents and, and adults sitting out there thinking, I would I would never have any HPV infection. That's not true. 80 to 90%, that's 8 to 9 uh, in a room of 10 people, isn't it? Um, just a very quick uh, question, again, a process one before we wrap up. Do we still need to screen the girls who have been undergoing the vaccination program uh, when they grow up to be adults? Yes. 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 You can see no the <laughs> In unison. Yes. Uh, Prof. Margaret, would you like to explain? Well, because the vaccine only covers, uh, the current vaccines um, only cover at most seven of the known 13 HPV strains that are associated with cancer. Now, the remaining uh, six that are not covered by the vaccine cause only a small fraction. But if you are wishing to eliminate the disease, then you have to deal with that small fraction. And you can, you therefore have to screen women as they start to come into the age where they'll get the pre-cancers. Now, the most fortunate thing is that 16 and 18, the two common ones which we are pretty well dealing with with the vaccine, are those which infect you when it's a younger time. So the pre-cancers occur in a younger age group with there. So you can um, go to the older women with these other types with confidence. So you've got a screening program. You may not have to screen them more than once or twice in their lifetime, but they have to be screened. And it, they must be screened with an HPV test because that's what you're looking for. Prof, the recommendations for screening in Malaysia? Yeah, we, as you know, we're moving, or maybe not, uh, we're moving towards HPV testing. And it's critical because we, we know that our girls have been vaccinated since 2010. So they're coming of age where they need to be screened. And in a vaccinated cohort, you need a sensitive test, which is the HPV test. So a, a pap smear will no longer be um, as sensitive or as good in picking up any of the abnormalities which we can prevent or, or treat. So critical as we bring back vaccination, as we move towards elimination, we must use them in tandem, vaccinate and screen with an HPV test. Mm. Prof. Margaret, can I get your thoughts on how Malaysia can move forward uh, towards the elimination of cervical cancer? Well, first of all, I want to say Malaysia is a beacon amongst um, low and low middle income countries because of the success of its vaccination program and because of the work that Prof. Wu and her colleagues have done with um, the Rose uh, uh, Foundation. So moving forward, you do need to ensure screening is available and accessible and that you've got the program right for follow-up so that they get treatment. So uh, you've got the vaccine program, I think, under control, but it needs to be sustained. That means you've got, you can't um, relax because you think your your program's going well. Mm. You constantly have to inform the immunizers, the family practitioners, the nurses, the health professionals in general 
about what the new developments are, what the impact is, and then you really have got to put you uh, back into screening. And treatment of invasive invasive cancer, um, that's, it's expensive and difficult, but hopefully it will become less and less required as the um, screening and, and vaccine programs really kick in. But screening now, I think, is uh, where the focus of attention needs to be in Malaysia. Mm-hmm. You're singing Prof Wu's song. <laughs> and, any final thoughts, Prof Wu? I, I am evangelical about this because I really feel we can do this. One vaccine, two screens. And look, this is really good investment. Malaysia has ability to treat. We have enough doctors. We have enough healthcare facilities all we need to do is get one dose of vaccine into the arms of boys and girls, mm-hmm. girls and boys, screen women at least twice with a good and validated HPV test. That's all we need and make sure we treat them. Mm. Yeah. George? You can hear two very passionate individuals here obviously work all their lives to make sure there's eliminations of uh, cervical cancer. I am equally passionate. The only thing that I'm in jubilation now understanding one dose is good enough for the girls and then we might steal some of the extra doses for the boys. <laughs> I, I just want to say one jab and two screenings in your lifetime is so revolutionary because every woman before this knows the fear of going for a pap smear every year. <laughs> so we can but let me just finish by saying all public health interventions need you to get coverage. You know, you've got to be in it to win it, as I say. So that means with screening, you have to get all your women screened. Mm-hmm. With vaccines, you have to get the needle into the arm of as many boys and girls as you can. If you don't do that, you're wasting your money. Mm-hmm. Well said. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining me today. Professor Margaret Stanley, Emeritus Professor of Epithelial Biology at the University of Cambridge. Professor Wu Yinling, Consultant Gynecological Oncologist at University Malaya Medical Centre. And my co-host, Dr. George Lee. This has been Health and Living, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.